Our guest speaker this morning is Mark Glanville. And Mark is the Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology at Regent College. Before that, for over 14 years, he pastored in Australia and in Vancouver. He's an author, many books and articles, a scholar. And uh, he's also a trained jazz pianist who's involved with the jazz scene here in Vancouver. And uh, we're delighted to have him here this morning to do our teaching in our Advent series. And the teaching text this morning is Matthew chapter 2. We read in the Advent reading verses 1 to 13. I'll carry on from there, from 13 to the end of the chapter. And it says this, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Let's get this nativity scene going here. Get this beautiful, cute little cow in its place. Come on, there's a star. So good to be here. I have so many friends in this community, so it's just a joy to be here. We live in East Van, off the drive, and uh, I left my son watching the soccer, Argentina versus France. I won't tell you what the score was when I walked out of the house, but my son was in tears, honestly. Little nine-year-old. Okay, let me start with a Christmas quiz. So we're gonna, this is myth, Christmas myth-busting. So Christmas quiz. So four questions. I think they're going to be on the screen. And just share the answer with the person next to you, and then add up your score. You ready? Four questions. Christmas quiz. Here we go. Question one. The Bible says that since Jesus was the sinless Son of God, Jesus did not cry as a baby. True or false? All right. Put your hand up for false. Put your hand up for true. (laughs) Okay, here we go. It's getting harder getting harder by degrees. Here's the next one. According to the Bible, which animals were present at Jesus' birth to welcome him into the world? And you can't look at the nativity scene for a clue. Oxen, donkey, A, B, cows, donkeys, sheep, C, cows and sheep, D, miscellaneous barnyard animals, E, dogs and cats, F, lions, tigers, bears, G, none of the above. Okay, put your hand up for A, B, C, D, 
E F G. You guys are Christmas whizzes. The answer is none of the above. The Bible doesn't mention animals. Right there. That doesn't sound right, does it? Here's number three. How many wise men were there? How many magi, according to the scriptures? A, three. B, two. C, seven. D, ten. E, we don't know. Put your hand up for A. Put your hand up for B. C, D, ten. E, we don't know. Well, man, you guys are on top of this. Christmas myth, you're learning. Once bitten, twice shy. Here's the hardest one. You ready? What did the innkeeper say to Mary and Joseph? A, there's no room at the inn. B, I have a stable you can use. C, come back after the Christmas rush and there should be vacancies. D, both A and B. And E, none of the above. Okay, for A, no room at the inn. B, I have a stable you can use. C, come back after Christmas. D, both A and B. Yeah, sounded likely to me too. I may or may not have said that one. How about E, none of the above? It's none of the above. Doesn't even mention an innkeeper. Isn't that crazy? Come on, doesn't mention an innkeeper? I think it's, I think it's in my Bible. So Christmas myth-busting. You know, we all know something of the biblical narrative, but the infancy stories in Matthew 2, where we're going right now, and in Luke 2, where we're not going right now, are incredible. We've got the myths. We all thought we knew the infancy narratives until just then, but the real story is incredible. And what I find really helpful is when we put Matthew 2 or Luke 1 and 2 into its historical context, which is what we're going to do. So we're going to go to Matthew 2, which is Herod and the Magi. Luke 2, we're not going to go there, is the shepherds and the angels. You remember that story. But we're going to go to Matthew 2, the Magi and Herod. And you're going to see it's all about kingship. So I do invite you to turn up to Matthew 2. We're going to spend a lot of time in the text. If it's an iPhone, if it's a hard copy Bible, this will be really fun. So Matthew 2 starts with a clanging paradox. It's very curious. Check out verse 1 of Matthew 2. In the time of King Herod, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? I said it was a clanging paradox, and that's because it starts in the time of King Herod. Herod's king, And then it says, there's a child who's been born king of the Jews. But Herod said he was king of the Jews. That's the title Herod, this barbaric king, gave of himself. And so in verse 1, the stage is set with a clanging paradox. There's a king of the Jews, and it's not Herod. So things are going to get interesting. Do we have the PowerPoint for the the homily? Is that around? or Maybe not. That's cool. Got a beautiful picture of King Herod. It's there. So, King Herod. Let me tell you about King Herod. King Herod died around about the same year that Jesus was born. A little over a little over a year after Jesus' birth, Herod died in a city that he'd modestly named Herodian after himself. 
Herod built Herodian for his own glory and honor, just on the edge of the desert. And that's where he died, an elaborate city. No one ever worships at Herodium. Herod was famous throughout the Roman world, especially for his building projects and his gifts. So he built, for example, thank you, he built Caesarea Maritima. He built Herodium. He built the city of Sebast and many other cities. He was also very famous, not just in Judea, but throughout the Roman world for his benefaction or his generous gifts. He gave enormous sums of money, for example, to the Caesars in Rome. He was a major benefactor of the Olympic Games. He built beautiful colonnades and pathways in other cities. But these benefactions and these building projects cost a lot of money. And how did Herod fund these projects? How did Herod fund these projects? He taxed, literally to death, the Judean population. And so Herod was hated by the Judeans as he taxed the peasants to death. Here's a story that illustrates Herod's reign aptly. Just before Herod's death, he ordered the lead city, lead men from every town be brought to the Hippodrome and kept there, locked up there. And he ordered that at the moment he dies, all those men in the Hippodrome would be put to death so that people would weep for his death. New Testament scholar Richard Horsley says that Judea in Herod's day was a police state complete with imprisonments, tortures, informers, secret police, and mass killings. So that's Herod. Now let's trace Herod in the story. Check out verse 2 with me in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi come to Jerusalem, which is Herod's city, and they say, we have come to pay this king of the Jews homage. Now that's interesting because King Herod might reasonably expect that they would come to pay him homage. But they were coming for a different king. And then verse 3 says, all of Jerusalem was startled. All of Jerusalem. And that's really that political administration that was gathered around Herod to support him and hold up his reign. And then there's this comical moment in verse 4, if you check it out, where it says that Herod calls together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And look at this. It says, he inquires of them where the Messiah is to be born. Now, there was messianic fervor in Jerusalem at the time, and any king of the Jews would know where the Messiah was to be born. Every scribe, every Pharisee, everyone knew where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, Yishmak, Micah chapter 5. But Herod didn't know it. And Matthew is just showing his illegitimacy as the king of the Jews. Herod was illegitimate. Rather than being appointed by the people, he conquered the Jewish people with Roman troops. And then let me just read the end of the Herod story from verse 7. It says, Then Herod secretly called for the wise men, the Magi, and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. 
Well, there's our first image, the wrong kind of king, Herod, king of the Jews. The wrong kind of king. That's our first image. Now we go to the Magi, the wise men. I don't know about you, but as a child, I used to think that the wise men came from Orienta. You're seeing we three kings of Orienta, and I thought that that's where the wise men came from. Did anyone else think that as a kid? We three kids, it was just me, we three king of Orienta. And then actually I heard a children's play where they were acting out the Magi scene. And the children literally said, they came to Jesus and one child said, I bring you gold. And the other one said, I bring you myrrh. And the, th the third child came to baby Jesus and said, I bring you Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to the Magi, kids get a lot wrong. But actually, adults don't get much right when it comes to the Magi, as we saw in our Christmas quiz. I think I'm pretty tempted to think there are three of them, for example, and that's not mentioned in the Bible. But there is a fascinating historical event that gives us a clue as to the meaning of this Magi event. This is the key to unlocking the homage that the Magi pay to Jesus. Now, the Magi, if we can grab the map, they come from the Parthian Empire to the right of the map, which is, and this is on the outskirts of the Roman Empire in the Roman East. Now, the Parthians were at war with the Roman Empire for a long, long, long time, including in the time of Jesus. And so the Magi were... They were astrologers, yes. Every child knows the Magi were sort of magicians, which is it's related to the English word magic. But they were also administrators. They were rulers in the courts of the Parthian Empire. And they were fighting from the for the liberation of the East from Rome. Some of them would have been kings, we three kings. And there's this fascinating event in, in the Roman history at about 66 AD, when Nero was Caesar in Rome. And in the 60s, Rome didn't have the kind of power that it wanted to have in the East. And there was a king that was going to be enthroned in Armenia, which you can see to the right of the map. And while Rome would have loved to have put a puppet king on the throne in Armenia, they had to negotiate with the Parthians. And the negotiation was the Parthians selected the king. They chose the king. But Emperor Nero in Rome would place the crown on the king of Armenia's head. So the wise men, the Magi, pilgrimaged to Rome, to Nero, with King Tiridates of Armenia. They pilgrimaged to Rome and they did what we call obeisance, or they paid homage to Nero the Caesar. They bowed to him, paid lavish gifts, Maybe they even gave him some Frankenstein. What a fascinating little story, little event, which would have happened from time to time, obeisance in Rome. Now let's return to Matthew chapter 2 and the biblical story. In verse 2, the Magi see Jesus' star rising, so they go to pay homage, obeisance to Jesus. Let's, meet, let's read from verse 9 now, if you would. It says, they set out... And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. 
So here's another gentle corrective. Here's my stable, a Lego stable. And the idea in the biblical story isn't that the star rests over the stable like this Lego star. Rest, as in the picture books. Rather, it's language that astrologers use. One star can stand still in relation to the others. When astrologers are reading the star, it's the relative movement between the heavenly bodies. So, for example, in Joshua chapter 10 in the Old Testament, there's this moment where it says the sun stood still. And the, the, it's astrology. It's, it's the relative movement of the heavenly bodies. So it's quite different from my Lego stable just there with this blazing star over the cattle. It says in verse 11, on entering the house, they saw, this is the Magi, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they had offered him gifts of gold, Frankenstein and myrrh. What's the meaning of the Magi's actions then? in light of this first century political history. What's the meaning of paying homage to Jesus? Well, these guys were Eastern elites longing for liberation from Rome. The Magi always worked for liberation from Rome. And they paid homage to Caesar when that was their only option, right? But now, the Magi take initiative. They pilgrim all the way to Judea, but to Bethlehem, an impoverished, henpecked little town, like really impoverished little town, and to like a, an animal's eating trough at that. These eastern elites come to Bethlehem, an animal's eating trough, to pay homage there. Now, Magi, you would expect, would look to a baby king in the Parthian Empire, but to follow this, the star's sign, to Bethlehem and pay homage there. In a stable, paying homage to our refugee king. The humility of Jesus' birth makes me think of hidden greatness and revealed greatness. Hidden greatness and revealed greatness. Have you ever been in a situation where you were just, you were with someone? And at the end of the conversation, or maybe the next day, you realize somehow that you'd been in the presence of greatness. Just as your time together was over, you realized you'd been in the presence of greatness. I had that kind of experience this week, actually. I was very kindly invited to go to lunch with some Chinese pastors, Chinese leaders, who had all recently left China. There was one particular Chinese pastor, been in Vancouver about a year, and I realized about five minutes into the conversation that he was a deeply kind man. Like just the kindness on his face as he listened to each person speak like a loving father. It really struck me. I thought, oh, I want to get to know you. And another five minutes into the conversation, I just got this sense that this pastor was a very humble man. He was just listening so humbly and telling his own story with such humility. And I really noticed it. I thought, oh, wow, you're really remarkable. And then it was just as lunch was finishing, just as we were about to part, I realized that, that he'd planted many, maybe a dozen house churches in China. I realized that 
the eye of the Chinese government would have been on him and that his family would have been under threat. And I just realized, whoa, you have remarkable spiritual authority. And, and I realized I was in the presence of greatness, you know. But you know, hidden greatness and revealed greatness. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. And I think that that kind of greatness of Jesus in that feeding trough, that's the kind of greatness that, that births that humility that that Chinese pastor had in those that follow Jesus. That humble greatness, that beautiful, tender greatness, hidden and revealed greatness. I mean, just think of Jesus' greatness. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the first fruits of this whole world renewed. Because in the cross, he defeated death and the devil. Jesus is the mender of all things. And yet here lying, lying in a feeding trough where shepherds would put the food for the animals. Jesus' greatness is both hidden and revealed. So the message of the story of Herod is here's the wrong kind of king. And the message of the story of the Magi is now at last God is becoming king. And this is what it looks like. It's like a whisper. I'd just love to play the piano now for you, if I may. I'd love to play that, that beautiful Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orientar. And, um, and then I will say a little more, because I want to offer a third image before we're done, and just a vision for how we might kind of enter into Christmas. But I'm going to play We Three Kings in, a jazz, in the jazz tradition. I'm a jazz pianist. And jazz always holds attention. You know, this, this Christmas narrative holds attention. It's a tension between Herod's rule, because it's still Herod's winter. We're still in Herod's winter. And yet now with this birth in a feeding trough, God is becoming king in Christ. The jazz holds attention always. Jazz, you know, it was birthed in the context of slavery in the black American community. And yet jazz is always a celebration of life. So I just invite you just to receive this art, if you like, and just to see how God reveals Christ to you as I play.
Thank you. I just want to offer a third image, because this is what happens next in the story. The third image is Jesus, our refugee king. The first image is Herod, the wrong king. The second image is the Magi paying homage to Jesus in a feeding trough. And the third image is Jesus, our refugee king. And I think you know the story that an angel appeared to Joseph, Jesus' father, in a dream, and said that, that Herod is planning to destroy Jesus. And so the family flees to Egypt as refugees. And they would have joined many other Judeans who were fleeing Judea at the time because of Herod's brutality for fear of their life. Perhaps they went to Alexandria where there was a Jewish community in Egypt. And you know the story, there's a massacre of the innocents, as it's called, which is the death of these Jewish babies in Judea, as Herod was trying to destroy Jesus. Jesus, our refugee king. Uh, I was actually um, involved in a debate on refugee issues about a month ago in Denver, Colorado. Um, in some of my scholarship, I advocate for welcoming refugees and vulnerable immigrants, and there was a in a Christian scholarly community, a debate, and um, I was arguing f for the four, yes, we should welcome refugees and vulnerable immigrants. Anyway, I presented um, on refugee welcome, and then following me, Sam Alfaro, who himself has been an undocumented, undocumented immigrant, lives in Phoenix. Sam, Sammy Alfaro is a, a scholar and a pastor, so he has a vulnerable immigrant experience. He was undocumented, and he presented after me. And he, he said to this room of Christians, Jesus was a refugee. It was very powerful hearing Sammy say that as an undocumented immigrant himself. He's documented now. And Sammy explained to us, he said, it's a question of who Jesus identifies with in Matthew 2. In Matthew, Jesus identifies with these people who are on the move. Jesus doesn't identify with Herod in his glory. Jesus doesn't even identify with the Magi in their hopeful searching. Jesus identifies with a vulnerable immigrant. 
And then Samuel Farrow said, I'll quote him, God cared for the holy border crossing family. How beautiful that our king, our refugee king, is a king who's in solidarity with people seeking a home. How beautiful that people who love this humble king are gifted with the humility of this pastor from China that I had lunch with this week. They're not gifted with the pride of Herod, no, but the beauty and the tenderness of Jesus. Praise God for his tenderness. Praise God for Christ's humility. Well, here we are, friends. Christmas next Sunday. Come on, Christmas next Sunday. Yeah, Sunday school teachers sometimes ask their kids, you know, in children's Sunday school, maybe downstairs, what's the meaning of Christmas? So I want to leave you with this question. What's the tone of Christmas? What's the emotion of Christmas? And I want to offer, on the basis of this amazing text, is that Christmas is the celebration that Herod must not hear of. It's a whispered celebration. What would it, like, what would it be like to celebrate Christmas with a whisper? You know, in Canada, we celebrate Christmas in the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. It's actually the opposite in Australia. It's the middle of summer. But I kind of like Christmas in North America because the winter solstice signifies so much of the incarnation, you know. Judea, under Herod, felt like winter. This was the long night of Herod's reign. Where was God? Christmas is a clandestine celebration. The word clandestine means secret or hidden. The incarnation is a glorious whisper, not a shout. The season has turned. Spring is around the corner, but it's not with us just yet. The nights are becoming shorter, but it's still night. And there are still Herods roaming about. And we might even find a Herod somewhere in our own heart. And there are 100 million forcibly displaced people in the world right now, literally the most in, in human history. So Christmas is joyful, but it's not that full-blooded victory celebration of Easter Sunday. Rather, the incarnation is whispered into the night at Christmas. The wise men, the magi, slinked away undercover for fear of Herod. How can you, how can we celebrate Christmas this year in a way that reflects the gospel accounts? Is there one thing you can do to celebrate Christmas as a clandestine celebration? I wonder. For our little family in East Van, we're planning to cook a roast dinner on the weekend and separate it into 20 small boxes, and we're just going to give a box out to some of the many homeless people who live on the drive, on commercial drive in our area. I wonder what it might be for you. Matthew chapter 2 makes me think of the real need for refugee sponsorship in Vancouver. I wonder if one or two of your small groups might even seek to learn about that and literally sponsor a refugee. If you want, I can put you in contact with um, some people who can get you on the right path for that. So let's just, I invite you, uh, as the music starts and as people come back up, I just invite you to take 30 seconds of listening prayer. How, what is the invitation for you to celebrate Christmas this year as a clandestine celebration? A celebration that Herod 
must not hear of.